In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a great episode for you. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about uh, military and defense spending um, with a little bit of a twist from the ways we've talked about it before. Um, Our second segment will be focused on uh, jury selection or the process known as voir dire. And finally, we will have a, uh, a segment focused on Lauren Boebert, of all people, yeah. and her incredibly avert racism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's going to be a really good episode. Overt racism that even Fox News could not excuse. Like, they, they couldn't find <laughs> excuses for. Mm. Even they were just kind yeah. of like, yeah, okay, this this fucked. <laughs> um, the only problem is all the Republicans she's talking to seem to like it. Mm. So, <laughs> do you do you know what else That's Republicans like, Michael? What tax cuts and COVID oh. numbers? I wasn't okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say tax cuts, but but the COVID numbers that I do get. Yes. So so far in the world, we've hit two hundred and sixty-four million cases, which is up from two hundred sixty-one million. Uh, last week. So that's 3 million new cases in a week, which is about the same uh, weekly case growth that we've seen for the past few weeks. So far, we've hit 5.25 million deaths, which is up from 5.21 million from the week before. So that's 40,000 new deaths in a week, or about 5,700 deaths per day. To put that in a little bit of perspective, at the time of our last recording two weeks ago, it was at about 8,500 deaths per day. So actually a pretty significant improvement. So far in the world, 55.9% of the world's population has received at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, Again, two weeks ago, it was at 53.8% of the population. So an average uh, weekly increase of vaccination rate of just around 1% over the last couple weeks. Uh, So far in the U.S., we've hit 49.7 million cases, which is up from 49.1 million the week before. So that's 600,000 new cases in a week, or about 86,000 new cases per day. Two weeks ago, that was about 100,000 new cases per day, so actually a pretty big improvement there as well. Um, We saw a proportional improvement in deaths as well, which is is interesting. Um, So we've hit 806,000 deaths, which is up from 800,000 deaths uh, the week before. So 6,000 new deaths in a week, or about 860 deaths per day, uh, down from 1,000 deaths per day two weeks ago. So a proportional improvement relative to the the improvement in daily cases. Uh, So far in the U.S., we have reached 59% of the population being fully vaccinated and 70% of the population with at least one dose. To me, that 70% is really exciting because um, like, well, first of all, you presume that anybody that got a first dose is going to get a second dose. So we can, uh, we can uh, you know, assume that 
we're going to reach 70% fully vaccinated, you know, within the next few weeks. But the second thing is that that 70% is like, according to like, you know, some estimates, like the very lower bound of what might be able to start establishing something close to herd immunity. It's probably not going to be that low, but like the fact that we're actually getting high enough to like even be within spitting distance is pretty exciting to me. Yeah. And then here comes the new variant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just in time for Virginia to get a governor that doesn't believe in science. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. So if, yeah, if if people didn't turn out in the Virginia gubernatorial election, because they didn't think it made that much of a difference. And then COVID was like, hello, (laughs) we're going to make it really matter. (laughs) Knock, knock motherfucker. Yeah. 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 In the, um, in the words of my favorite song by the artist, Michael Bloom, we are so <laughs> fucked. Yes. Yes. Very fucked. Uh, but what else is new? <laughs> yeah. What else is new? Well, you know, you know what else is not new? What? The uh, the, the United States Congress voting to increase the, bil- the military budget again. Mm. Yes. That is very much something that I assume is going to happen every year. Yeah. <laughs> because, of course... We don't spend enough on military. I mean, we're basically neck and neck with China. We're, we're neck and neck with Russia. I mean, if we don't keep adding another $30 billion, $40 billion to, to our, our, our spending on the military every single year, eventually China is just going to outpace us. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. So so let's 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 look at this because you know I I've already seen Bernie Sanders come out against this, which I guess he doesn't he doesn't like, you know he 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 loves China. He doesn't like us being able to defend ourselves. So let yeah, let I mean pro China Bernie. So obviously this is something that I didn't research prior to making this point, but I assume that based on the way that all that Republicans and all the Democrats that are voting for this that we must be neck and neck with China. So let me actually pull up the numbers. Oh wait, fuck. Uh hey Michael, there's a problem here. Uh-oh, we're going to have to cut out that whole bit, huh? Yeah, we're going to have to cut out that whole bit because according to Statista, uh China spends a third of what we spend on the military. Mm. Mm-hmm. So basically, oh yeah, and it looks like it looks like Russia spends a tenth. Yeah, uh-huh. and in fact, we spend more than the next yeah. eleven countries combined, most of which are our allies. But Nathan, what if the next ten countries combined all get together, and then we have to fight them? Yeah, but most of them are our then allies. We're really gonna want to. Well, you know, today, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yep. I, I guess, I guess we should be worried about the United Kingdom turning against us. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that ship might have sailed. Yeah. But luckily, you know, we spend 38% of the world's military budget. So as long as, you know, 62% of the world doesn't turn against us, that is a good, we're point. good. That is a good point. <laughs> I mean, Hey, Hey, we should get to the point where we're just spending more than the rest of the world combined. Then we can just dominate the whole world. We can drone strike brown people overseas and, mm. you know, no one will bat an eye at it. How could they? Be too scary. 
Yeah. So <laughs> wait. So did they already pass this, or did just so, House pass this? Okay. Well, well, well. So that was actually the numbers that I just read, um, or the 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 comparison that I just read was about the military budget for the previous year. So uh, according wait, to the Congressional Budget Office, the last time that the uh, the United States Legislature passed the defense the national defense authorization act um the 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 appropriations totaled 736.9 billion dollars now it should be noted that uh that some sometimes when accounting when when counting up the entire expenditure for national defense there are other things that are taken into account besides just what is authorized by the uh um, by the National Defense Authorization Act, um, but that's specifically what is what is being put forth in the current bill that's being proposed. So that was last year. All right, this year they have raised that to seven hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars, which is an increase of almost thirty billion, and is twenty-five billion dollars more than Joe Biden asked for. Hmm. Well, he bungled Afghanistan, so he must not know anything. Yeah, actually, it's funny <laughs> that you should mention that because another part of this of this bill is actually an investigation into the uh, bungled exodus from mm. Afghanistan. And interestingly enough, there was also there was also uh, funds appropriated towards investigating the entirety of the war. Which hmm. at first I saw that and I thought, great. I love that. Yeah, and then I'm into I saw, accountability. And then I was like, wait a minute. The person who's proposing that is Liz Cheney, which makes me immediately suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's just appropriated towards clearing Dick Cheney's good name. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I will say I, I, at this point, I don't know enough about that specific part of the bill to have an opinion mm-hmm. that I think matters too terribly much, but I and suspicious of the fact that it was proposed by Liz Cheney. Another important important facet of this uh, to go ahead and to go ahead and lay out. So this has already been passed by the House of Representatives. It was passed by the House of Representatives back in September, which means mm-hmm. that it's now the Senate's turn. So the Senate actually already did have a vote on uh, on their own version of this. Because the two vote, because the two versions will end up needing to be renegotiated, mm-hmm. and the Senate actually voted it down in a forty-five to fifty-one vote. Now, because this is going to be regular order, they can't do it under, or they're not doing it under reconciliation, which means they need sixty votes in order to avert the filibuster. So, mm-hmm. only one Republican joined the Democrats in order to vote for it which was uh, Susan Collins. And there were several Democrats that voted against it. And, uh, you know, hearing these names, you might think, hmm, maybe there's a good reason to vote against it. Uh, There's uh, Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, Senator Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, um, Senator uh, Jeff Murkey from Oregon, uh, Ron... Wydan from Oregon, and of course uh, Senator Bernie Sanders from uh, from Vermont. So 
What's interesting is a lot of the media coverage about the vote has focused more on the Republican opposition and not towards mm. the more left-leaning Democratic opposition. Because, of course, they're not going to focus on that. So the Republican opposition, based on what I've read, they don't really have much of a reason to oppose it. Like, mm. there, is, there is one thing that they were specifically citing where they wanted some uh, sanction on uh, some pipeline in Russia, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and most of them, it looks like are going to end up voting for it anyway. This was just sort of like a, a vote to proceed. Um, they're probably going to end up ultimately voting for it because of course they, they love the fact that you're increasing the military budget, but yeah, that's why people are reporting on the Republicans voting against it. Cause man, they must be pissed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's <laughs> interesting. And, that. and what I think is also interesting is something that Chuck Schumer said, which he, he was very careful to target his criticisms at Republicans and not discuss the people within his own caucus that are voting against it and also why they mm -hmm. might be voting against it. So he said, quote, Republicans just blocked legislation to support our troops, support our families, keep Americans safe. Republican dysfunction has again derailed bipartisan progress. Uh, he referred to their stance as, quote, inexplicable and outrageous. So look, like I said, it's not, it didn't seem very clear to me that there were any extremely substantive reasons why Republicans were opposing it. Like there were a few mm -hmm. amendments apparently that they wanted that didn't end up getting added. Um, most likely it's just because, you know, it just to, it's just to give Biden a hard time. But What's, of course, always as always missing from the conversation is the left-wing opposition to it, which basically says, hey, idiots, we already spend more than the next 11 countries combined on our military. We could cut our military budget in half and still spend significantly more than our biggest competitor, China. We will still have the biggest military in the world by far. And yet... Every time there's a discussion of spending to help the American people, to actually uh, provide a social safety net, to increase health care, to give free tuition-free community college, every time there's discussions about that, it's always, how are you going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. but, but, but how are you going to pay for it? Yeah. Let's, let's also like be clear about one thing. Like <clears throat> This defense spending is not everything that the government does for national defense. It yeah. does not include diplomacy, foreign assistance, um, homeland security operations, veterans affairs. It like excludes a bunch of like those key activities. Importantly also, it's really narrow in its definition of defense because it basically is just talking about military defense which like makes sense but as we've experienced over this past year and we will continue to experience at an increasing rate over the next hundred years our national security is more than the people pointing guns or bombs at us yeah um like there like there are tons of threats to u.s lives to u.s national security that are outside of the definition of 
you know, traditional warfare, and as a result, don't get particularly funded. Yeah. So not only are we like not investing in social safety net things that, you know, propel America into the future, and side note, would actually make us a better competitor with China on the world stage if we did things like invest in education. Um, but we fail to address actual serious risks to American life and limb that are non-military, like this fucking pandemic, yeah. <laughs> like like polluted air, tainted drinking water. Um, access you know, to health care. Access to health care. People exactly. die without that. Thousands yes. of people every year die because of lack of access to health care. More people die due to lack of access to health care in a month yep. than have died in the last like 10 years because some foreign person with a gun came to our country and tried to kill us. Yep. And yet we call military spending defense spending despite the fact that most military operations, almost all military operations, are offensive. We're yeah. overseas. Mm -hmm. It's offensive spending. Yeah. We're not actually defending our citizens. And 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 how can how can and again, how can that be the main focus when you can point to any number of areas that Michael just just talked about and find a significantly higher body count and yet less resources allocated by the U.S. government. It makes Seriously. no fucking sense. Cancer every year kills almost as many people in the U.S. as the number of combat deaths in America's 10 most deadly wars combined. Every year, cancer kills that many people. And yet, we invest 117 times more in defense, like military spending, than we do in cancer research as from the federal government. Yeah. It, it like, and I'm not saying, and I'm not saying like we should bomb cancer, right? I'm not saying like <laughs> buy an F 35 and shoot cancer. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's like obviously square peg, round hole. <laughs> but the fact is that like money speaks to priorities. Yeah. And if I pri our priorities continue to be, F-35s, tanks, overseas military operations, spying, and nuclear war. Those are the things that we're going to solve. Like, those are the things we're going to invest in, and those, that's what we're going to get, you know? We're not going to get a solution to cancer. Yeah. Investing a hundredth of what we spend on the Pentagon. Yeah. And this kind of goes along with one of the things that I think is not is also not talked about enough. So one of the common things that I, that you hear from uh, more establishment Democrats and honestly, not even just elected establishment Democrats, like people that are democratic voters that are just kind of like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. I'm just going to vote for Democrats. And all these, all these progressives, all these leftists that are always railing against the Democratic Party. I mean, we agree, like, you, you agree with the Democrats on most things, so why do you have to spend so much time railing against them? This right here is a prime example of why we need to rail against the Democratic Party, all right? Because 44 Democrats voted to increase 
the military budget again in this year by almost $30 billion, $25 billion more than Biden even asked for. And yet we're supposed to think of the Democrats as the Dove Party. Mm. All right. And that's just in the Senate. That's 181 just in, that's just House Senate. members, 181 House Democrats voted for this spending increase with 135 Republicans. 72% of the House of Representatives voted to increase military spending. We're not in a fucking war. Yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> or at least, you know, not in a direct war. Yeah, not in a real one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are a few reasons behind this. And the biggest reason is one that I've talked, we, we both talked about so many times on this show, which is just corruption, corruption, corruption. All right. Defense contractors, defense manufacturers, they donate millions of dollars to political campaigns. All right. Basically legalized bribery. They call them super PACs, but let's call them what they are. It's legalized bribery in order to keep candidates and and keep politicians in office. And of course, whenever there is a military budget that would increase would, would increase military spending that would then give these military contractors and give these manufacturers more money, the manufacturers call up the the senators, they call up the reps and say, "Hey, remember that time that I gave you like uh, $35,000?" Remember that time? Yeah, I want to return on my investment. So you're going to vote for this. You're going to you're going to draft legislation that's going to increase the military budget so that I can get more money. And what happens? They do exactly that. Because when you bribe somebody, they do what you want them to do. It's not that complicated. <laughs> it's really not that complicated. And so to justify it, they you know, they often try to come up with new reasons to to invade other countries or to to um to attack other countries and as an added bonus the countries that you attack they'll sometimes be rich in mineral wealth like uh, Afghanistan they'll be rich in oil like Iraq and that just that just allows for more benefits to United States corporations and it makes war even more profitable that's how the system works. That is why we keep increasing our military budget. It is corruption. Spreading democracy makes a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the one time that Joe Biden actually did something that was bold and good, getting us out of Afghanistan, the one time he actually did something right, that's where everybody turned against him. That's where the media turned against him. That's where the Democratic establishment turned against him. I mean, how fucking transparent can you be? Like, hmm. they're showing who they are. The Democratic Party is not a dove party. They are a hawk party. Yeah, and the thing is, like, our lives could be so much better. If we didn't do this, that's the other thing. It's like, it's just not, it's just not free to invest this much money in military yeah. spending. Like, so, so NATO, the NATO agreement requires member nations to spend 2% of GDP on defense. 
Most of them don't do it. But, you know, that's that's the agreement. Currently, the U.S. spends about 3.6% of its GDP on defense spending. So if we cut that down to the NATO requirement of 2%, we'd save around $300 billion a year. Or, as they measure spending bills, $3 trillion over 10 years. <laughs> With that money, you could do so much. Like, depending on where you put it, you could, like, literally end homelessness. You could end child poverty. Tuition-free college. N like, like national student debt forgiveness yeah you know just the like just the increase in the military budget from the last two uh the, the last two um uh proposed military budgets just the increase could could pay for tuition-free college mm -hmm. just the increase <laughs> yeah like and 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 michael i th michael alluded to what i what i think is a really important point which is that when we talk about military budgets, we talk about the annual spending, which isn't quite as scary. Mm -hmm. But of course, when we yeah. talk about spending packages that are dispersed over the course of 10 years, we talk about the entire package to make it sound scary. So the media was always talking about the, the original Build Back Better plan, which was $3.5 trillion, but of course, they didn't talk about that as here's how much it would be per year. Per year, that would be $350 billion. But if we talked about the military budget in the same way, then we would be saying that after 10 years, we will have spent $7.68 trillion on the military. Now, that's a scary number. But of course, no one ever brings that up because they don't want to bring that up. Because when it comes to the military budget, there's this assumption that changes in that are off the table. All right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't that doesn't affect the deficit. That doesn't affect the debt. And to the and extent it that does, it does, it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. But of course, investments like tuition free college, which would actually see a significant return because people would get better jobs, which would yield more revenue, which would inevitably end up paying for itself. When we're talking about investments into healthcare, where multiple studies have shown that under a Medicare for all system, you are going to save the American people money. And in fact, in most countries in the world, they spend significant actually in every country in the world they spend less per capita on healthcare than we do because our system is horribly inefficient and in fact in terms of government spending we still end up spending more per capita than most countries because you know if, if you if you're taking into account how much we spend uh how much the government spends into medicare and medicaid which is still a system that lacks any ability to, to renegotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies, which ends, which ends up driving up costs significantly. If you just look at how much the government spends on healthcare, governments, most of the governments around the world in which they completely provide healthcare by the government, 
they still end up spending, their government ends up spending more, less money than our government, even though we, our government yeah. doesn't cover everybody, which yeah, is we're fucking not covering ridiculous. 30 million people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's per capita. It's per capita. Mm-hmm. Per capita, our government actually spends more than most countries in which they cover everybody. Yeah, for worse outcomes, we spend more. For money. worse outcomes. It would be an investment, but we're not going to invest in it. Yeah. All right? And, you know, one per- you might say that, like, the military budget is adjusted every year. You know, so we should, we should reflect it as an annual number because every year, if we wanted to, we could reduce it. But to your point, Nathan, we never do. Yeah. So there's no point talking about a military budget that's less than $7.6 trillion over 10 years because it's going to be more than that. It's going to yeah. go up. Like, there's no sense in which, like, we're feasibly going to reduce this. We should. And if we do, that's great. Like, so it's it's awesome that that we're not technically committed to $7.7 trillion, but we're substantively committed to that unless we change the way we're doing things. So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Because the world sucks. Yeah. Angst. But sometimes, if you look around you... Reprieve. (laughs) Sometimes if you look around you, you notice that it sucks even more than you thought it did. And if you look harder... More angst. (laughs) And if you look harder, you realize that it really, really fucking sucks. But then if you look even harder, you might notice that there is actually good in this world. And in fact, if you look around you, Good actually is all around us. Wow. That that is so heartwarming. That was a lot of angst and then bam. <laughs> good actually. Yeah. <laughs> so this week's good actually is just objectively a good thing. Just flat out, unqualifiably a good thing that made me happy that I hope will make you happy. So... I don't know how many of y'all have been paying attention to uh, the John Deere strike, but basically John Deere workers uh, have actually been going on strike for the last several months, actually, to protest conditions and to protest uh, pay within John Deere factories, um, mostly in Iowa. In fact, when I was when I was living in Iowa, uh, there was actually a John Deere factory like right down the road from me. Uh, so this hits to this, this actually kind of hits close to, uh, what used to be home. Um, so anyway, they run on strike and they were able to actually get some pretty significant concessions. So they held to it. They held to, they held to their convictions and they were able to get 10% pay bumps, ratification bonuses, of uh, $8,500. They promised to preserve the pension program for future workers. They, they had originally been planning on taking pensions away from new workers. They promised to preserve mm. that. They boosted payments to retiring employees. They uh, And they gave um, 20-year workers uh, an extra 250 every month. 
Um, they also threw in a uh, a lump sum of two thousand dollars for each year that individual workers worked at the company. Um, now they said that the main reason for that was to try to was to help pay for um, uh, pay for health insurance uh, until people applied uh, uh, until people were able to get Medicare. So to put that into perspective. The people at the lower end of the wage spectrum, um, they got a pay raise from uh, $20.12 an hour to $22.13 an hour. And uh, people that had were on the higher end of the pay spectrum um, saw a increased payment of uh, $30.04 uh, $30 an hour to $33.05 an hour. So they got hmm. some pretty significant concessions. And... I mean, the strike worked. It that is awesome. It worked. It is um, so rare to hear a successful unionization story or strike story these days. Well, that's because people spend so much time trying to fight against unions to yeah. to bust unions. All right, there's yeah. so many strategies that that these companies will use when whenever any any uh, factory or 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 group of workers try to unionize, they'll. They'll spread a bunch of bullshit propaganda. They'll intimidate them. They'll do these retaliatory retaliatory strikes, which, which aren't even fucking legal, but they'll find loopholes in order to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But this is a good example of why we need more unions. Why right to work yeah. is a complete and utter uh, bullshit term. Yeah, misnomer, and absolutely. why every single state needs to needs to pass legislation in order to preserve unions. So I, I'm so happy for all the John Deere workers that were able to see an increase in their, their pay, an increase in benefits based on this strike, and I applaud the fuck out of them for standing up for themselves. Absolutely. And that's good, actually. All right, so for our second segment, we are talking about voir dire or specifically jury selection. Wadir, um, not John Deere? Wadir. <laughs> yeah, the strike of Wadir workers. And, no. <laughs> so we might, you know, interchange these terms. I think Wadir technically can include, like, the uh, interviewing of expert witnesses as well, but we're specifically thinking about the process by which a jury um, goes from the overall jury pool down to, you know, the specific alternate jurors that get whittled down to the ultimate jury that will be in place for a courtroom. And so, so this is a, you know, an installment of the injustice system, which is, as you may or may not know, the series that we periodically do on different aspects of the uh, criminal justice system in the United States that contribute to um, racial and, uh, you know, uh, socioeconomic disparities in criminal justice outcomes. Um, and this is definitely one of them. And we'll get into that. Um, Wait a minute, another... Michael. Do you, do you mean to tell me that our criminal justice system is racist? Yeah. Yep. Shit. I do. <laughs> Dude, I, I was thinking, as I was researching for this Wadir segment, I was reflecting on how many of these segments we've done. 
uh, yeah. of these injustice system segments and how many there are left to do. Yeah. It's depressing and overwhelming yeah. how far we are from a system that is anywhere close yeah. to like doling out equal yeah. justice. What's nice about Wadir though, there's actually some pretty simple solutions that could be implemented that would actually make it significantly less biased and actually yield significantly better outcomes. And there's a good amount of research to suggest like that to, to suggest the efficacy of those solutions. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this will be a little bit less down in the dumps by the end of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if we ever took uh, like if we ever actually executed against any of these simple solutions, like yeah, get exactly. rid of cash bail for misdemeanors. Yeah, you know how beneficial that would be. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's like so straightforward. But anyway, yeah. yeah. So, but we'll we'll we're specifically talking about jury selection, um, and one of the reasons we're talking about this is because we've had a number of high profile cases, you know, over the past year, that and the juries have uh, figured like you know, strongly in the media coverage. Specifically, I'm thinking about like the Ahmad Arbery case, which was just decided, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where in both cases there was at most one black juror making up, you know, 8% of the 12-person jury relative to 14% of the U.S. population. Yeah. Um, That's like some, that, and and that's a problem of jury selection and one that we're going to get into. Yeah. So, voidir actually originates from the French term for uh, to see them say, which Mm. is something that I actually did not know prior to prior to researching that. So, once again, the uh, the French gave us something more than just fries. (laughs) Um, that was a terrible joke. Please, yeah, I, I I should I should just stop now. That was horrible. Uh, <laughs> the game is so much it's, it's been a long day it, i mean statue of liberty yeah. like you know that, yeah come on that, that that shit's great um so as michael talked about the voidir system is pretty much the system of choosing the jury for a trial and it is actually often yeah. said that a lot of a lot of trials are decided even before you get into the courtroom. They're actually decided during the jury selection process mm-hmm. and the right jury can make or break a a trial. Now, already, yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing some problems here because the idea behind being yep. tried by a jury mm-hmm. of your peers is supposed to be if two really smart pers- people, uh, an attorney, a lawyer and a defense lawyer and a prosecutor present two different cases to the best of their ability to a group of impartial people, then the truth will rise to the top. Yeah. And the best possible decision will be made, will be made by those jurors. Yeah. That is the whole theory behind our adversarial system of criminal justice. Yeah. Like the point is not, to make a system in which prosecutors always win. The point is not Mm -hmm. to make a system in which defense lawyers always win. The point is to make a system in which what actually happened is taken into account when the jury decides to decides on their deliberation. All right. Yeah. So 
that, that that's that's how the system works so if already the selection of the jury is you know is this much of an influence on the the ultimate verdict we're already seeing some problems mm -hmm. so let's let's take a look at yeah at how that actually works so first off let's talk about um the process itself so most of what i'm going to talk about uh comes from an article uh, a, a a scholarly article written by uh cynthia lee who is a professor of law at george the george the george washington university law school in federal court the voir dire system is usually conducted by the judge uh in state court jury selection procedures actually vary so in seven states it's primarily dominated by the judge um in four states it's primarily dominated by the attorneys so meaning the prosecutor and the defense lawyer and in all the other states it's a mix of both of them so for most most states it's actually a mix of both so usually what happens it takes an average of um you know three and a half to to, to four hours usually and what they're usually doing is they're asking questions of potential people to serve on the jury. And the idea behind this is you want to yeah. make sure that people that you're putting on the jury don't have some type of bias that might influence their ability to be impartial. Now, there are two primary ways in which a person can be struck from the jury. The first is called a preemptory challenge. Now, each side is given a set number of them. So I believe it's usually like six, but it, I mean, it depends on the size, what the size of the jury is it going to end up being. Um, now, in the preemptory challenges, they can basically strike someone from the jury for any reason or no reason at all. Like they don't even have to provide a reason. Unless they specifically say, I'm striking this person from the jury because of their race or because of their gender. Yeah. Then of course the other one, the other, the other types of strikes happens later. And, and those would be those, those strikes, each side has an unlimited number of them, but they have to provide good reasons for them. Yeah. They're for cause. Yeah. For cause. Now the issue is, as I said, Sometimes in the pre preemptory challenges, you don't have to give a reason, mm -hmm. which means that as long as you don't say, I'm taking this person off the jury because they're black, yep. like it's fine. Yeah. Now there is and a safeguard. There is a safeguard for that. That was actually established in a court case called um, Batson versus Kentucky, in which if one of the people, one of the attorneys strike, strikes somebody and the other attorney suspects that it's because of gender or sex, they can challenge it. Whereupon the person, the, the person that struck the juror has to come up with some type of reason in which is gender neutral or race neutral for why they wanted to strike the person. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds good. But in practice, the reasons that they come up with can often be really, really stupid. Yep. 
making it incredibly blatantly clear that the reason why they struck the person was because of race or sex. So I just want to give three examples real quick. So there was one case. It was called United States v. Uwazhok, in which there was, there was a black defendant. He was charged with importing heroin, in which there was one person. There, there was a black woman who uh, the prosecutor attempted to strike from the jury. And this was challenged by the defense attorney, who basically was like, hey, this is definitely racist. So the prosecutor came up with two different excuses for, for why the, uh, they were striking this, this black woman. The first one was that, um, was that the woman worked for the United States post office and they had a policy to not allow post workers on the jury. Now, when the defense attorney pressed the prosecutor on it and, the prosecutor was forced to admit that the post office did not have such a policy. Uh, they had to come up with something else. And what they came up with, what the prosecutor came up with was because the juror was a single parent who rented an apartment in an urban area, she quote, might be involved in a drug situation where she lives. And the judge accepted it and she got taken off the jury. Yep. Another, another case. Uh, this one was uh, the United States versus uh, Tyndall. There was a black man who was on trial, and one of the race-neutral reasons that they came up with for striking a black female from the jury was that her name was similar to that of another defendant in a previous case <laughs> tried by the same prosecutor. The cases were completely unrelated, but mm -hmm. the judge. The only person it. involved in both was the prosecutor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the judge allowed it. Yeah. And the most ridiculous one, this is going to make you fucking laugh. All right. The United States versus Romero Reña. It was a Hispanic man charged with possession of marijuana and heroin. All right. He was struck from the jury, and the prosecutor. His race-neutral reason, his initial race-neutral reason for striking this guy was that he had a P-rule. P-rule? Yeah. His P-rule was that anybody, any juror whose occupation started with a P, he never let them on the jury. That was just his rule. And this was a pipeline worker. <laughs> and the judge allowed it. I heard about one case in North Carolina. A black juror was struck because he was whistling somewhere over the rainbow as he left the courtroom. The judge allowed it. Hmm. And also the example that I gave, eventually there was a remand and the trial court actually rejected the, uh, the, the, the P rule, but he came up with another reason he said he heard somewhere that marijuana was often used by pipe operators and the person on trial was on trial for marijuana. They accepted that. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's the freaking problem, right? Like the problem is that a preemptory challenge is by definition 
not causal. It's not causally related. It's yeah. about something that doesn't matter. So I think I think one of the people that actually put it best was um, Justice Stephen Breyer. In 2005, in a concurrence, he wrote, the law's anti-discriminatory, or sorry, the law's anti-discrimination command and a preemptory jury selection system that permits or encourages the use of stereotypes work at cross purposes uh, and suggested that the court quote reconsider the preemptory challenge system noting that the quote the difficulty of finding a legal test that will objectively measure the inherently subjective reasons that underlie the use of a preemptory challenge um require judges to engage in an awkward and sometimes hopeless task of second-guessing prosecutors' instinctive judgment, the underlying basis for which may be invisible even to the prosecutor exercising the challenge. Yes. What he's saying is that preemptory challenges, by definition, are biased. They're just made on instinct. They're made on feeling. They're biased. The question is whether they're illegally biased or unjustly biased but by definition they're biased they're totally subjective to the prosecutor yeah so the fact is that they could literally say they're wearing a red shirt strike them from the jury there's no standard that prevents them from doing that and there's all kinds of reasons why a judge might accept that not least of which would be their ongoing relationship with prosecutors because they see them every freaking day in the courtroom yeah and implicit bias affects the jury it infects the judge it affects the prosecutor it affects the defense lawyer and in yeah. fact we've talked about the implicit bias test before the harvard implicit bias test so to, to show you some data about how prevalent implicit bias is so there's been over 14 million implicit bias tests uh the the, the implicit bias test has been taken over 14 million times all right. Looking at the statistics of the result of that, and that's a pretty fucking big sample size. All right. Mm -hmm. Looking at the at the the results of that, 75% of those that have taken it have demonstrated an implicit bias in favor of whites over blacks. Yeah. 75%. And that's the difficulty when it comes the difficulty when it comes to implicit bias is that it's implicit. You don't yeah. always know that it's happening. Even and there's, if your intentions are great. Exactly. Even when your intentions are great. And look, it is important to note that one way or the other, your biases should not get in the way of the evidence or the facts. Because what you're trying to figure out as a juror is, was the law broken? Yep. Did this person commit the crime that they mm -hmm. actually committed? And, you know, I mean, in some cases, what should the, you know, to what extent should they be punished? But for the most part, it's just about figuring yeah, out the they facts. Don't, they don't decide sentencing. They're just finders of fact, which to yeah. your point, like means implicit bias is really important. Having a balanced jury and a representative jury is really important. Yeah. And there's actually a significant amount of data to show a very simple solution to cut down on racial bias. It's called race salience. So race salience is a term that's used 
to basically just say, to make it clear that race has the potential for being a salient way of, of, of affecting a person's perceptions during a process. And it was actually found in several studies that, that are cited by, um, by the, this, uh, by this law professor that simply the act of asking jurors, Hey, this case involves a black person being accused of committing a crime against a white person. Do you think there's any biases that you might have that could affect your judgment? Just asking that, not even necessarily like putting aside how people answer that, just asking that question forces the jurors to think about their potential biases and mm. actually makes them less likely to, to, to come to a guilty verdict. Whereas yeah. not doing that makes them more likely to come to a guilty verdict if the, if the defendant is black. Mm -hmm. There's, there are several empirical studies that have shown that. So one simple, one simple thing that would actually immensely cut down on that implicit bias would just allow, would just be to allow for race salient questions during the voir dire process. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And so to your point, Nathan, like that racial implicit racial bias is important at multiple stages throughout this process. One is just in the jury and the other is the presence, you know, in preemptory challenges and voir dire. Like, as we're talking about, like, not only is it about trying to get to a place where the jury is unbiased, but the fact is that because of our adversarial system, that's not actually the goal of the prosecutor and the defendant. The goal yeah. of the prosecutor is to get a jury biased towards prosecution. And the goal of the defense is to get a jury biased towards acquittal. So, like, to your point, like, we should try to, like, get the jury to be unbiased. But at the same time, we need to put in place, you know, structures that help limit the ability of the prosecutors and defense to leverage racial bias for their own benefit. Um, one study by the um, one study by a group of faculty and uh, students in in California of California cases um, looked at 683 California court appeal cases involving objections to preemptory challenges right so like that's the ba the the batson objection that you mentioned um and in 75 percent of cases prosecutors use their their in this in california they had three strikes um to strike african-american jurors <laughs> <laughs> even though yeah and and only and only in three of those cases did they use them to strike white jurors and when appellate courts reviewed these cases they found errors in just 2.6 percent of them so so like when you look at the data in aggregate and this is the problem with implicit bias this is a problem with a lot of these with a lot of these um you know issues when you look at an aggregate, it's obvious, right? 75% of the time, preemptory challenges strike African-Americans. They only make up 14% of the U.S. population. 
<laughs> and only 2.6 of the time did the appellate courts find a problem with that. In aggregate, the problem is obvious, but in each individual case, it is not. Yeah. And so that means we need structures in place yeah. in order to help prevent these things from happening. Another really important source of bias in jury selection is actually bias in jury pools. So that is the pool of people in the community from which potential jurors are selected that then are entered into the voir dire process. Um, so the Constitution actually requires that jurors be chosen from a, quote, fair cross-section, close quote, of the community. But in most communities in America, black people and people of color are significantly underrepresented in those jury pools. So the law requires, right, that in order, you know, in order for it to be a fair cross-section, that black people and people of color make up a proportionate, uh, you know, representation of the overall, uh, in the pool, make up a proportional representation of the overall population. But the problem is that jury pools are sourced from lists that that systemically and systematically undercount people of color. So this is so the most common source for a jury pool list is actually voter registration databases. But we know that due to historic socioeconomic and geographic obstacles, voter registration, uh, you know, vastly undercounts certain racial and ethnic groups, people of color and black people. So automatically, you're taking your jury pool from a biased sample, biased against representation of people of color. Now, some states are using driver's license lists, but we already know that th that is subject to the same problem as voter registration laws. Um, so it, it, one, one study, for example, of Wisconsin in 2005 found that while 80% of white residents had driver's licenses, only half of African-American and Latino residents had them. So we're basically like setting ourselves up to fail in our constitutionally required mandate for a fair cross-section for our jury to reflect basically our community. Um, the, other, the other place where people fall out in this jury selection process is almost all of these jury summonses are mailed, right? But we, but states don't keep up very well and don't invest in keeping up with people who move. And so as a result, about 12% of jury summonses are returned as undeliverable. This disproportionately leaves out people of low income levels, people who move frequently. Um, and because of, you know, historic Reason like causes of bias in the U.S., which we've talked about on previous episodes, um, this disproportionately uh, leaves out people of color and 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 black people specifically. Um, so really, we're faced with rampant underrepresentation of people of color in the jury pool that are then. So that leads to, you know, a bias selection of potential jurors that then make it to the courtroom where there are no, like, strong controls against racial bias in the voir dire process. And so as a result, 
we're ending up with juries that don't look like the communities and therefore are more likely and are not controlled for racial bias, which are leading to racially biased outcomes. Um, and again, when you try to challenge these things in appellate courts, it's like it almost is never successful. The same California study that I was mentioning, over the last 30 years, the California Supreme Court has reviewed 142 cases involving claims um, of problems with peremptory challenges during voir dire. And they only found violations three times of all of those cases, right? So, so it's already a really high bar through the voir dire process. And then if you want to challenge like the, the makeup of the jury pool, um, in most cases, for a court to find that a group is significantly underrepresented, they have to have an absolute disparity of typically around 10%, right? So basically, if there are 10% fewer of a certain group in the jury pool, then they are, they are required to take steps to increase that representation, right? But... That's an absolute disparity, which means that if that population makes up less than 10% of the total population, then it will never trigger a requirement to rebalance the proportion. So in certain communities in California where black people make up like 5% of the population, they could, they could literally leave all black people out of the jury pool and it would never be triggered that they would have to rebalance the proportions. So only one fair cross-section claim, that's basically saying that's basically putting forward the claim that your jury pool is underrepresentative. Only one fair cross-section claim has succeeded in the last 10 years in any state or federal court in the entire country. Courts have literally rejected challenges where a computer glitch in a county's jury selection software, excluded all African Americans. <laughs> because it wasn't intentional and because they didn't, African Americans, you know, the disparate, the, 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 you know, it wasn't, it didn't meet that 10% absolute dispar um, dis uh, disparity mark. So, like, there are serious problems here with not only our jury pool process, but also our jury selection process. And because of underlying racial bias in, um, in our, you know, the people that make up our justice system, right? Because we have, like, relatively speaking, way underrepresented the African-American community in judges and prosecutors. For example, more than 40% of Americans are people of color, but 95% of prosecutors are white. Hmm. So like that sets us up for a situation where racial bias is like, we're begging for it to happen, even in challenges for cause, um, where, you know, in, in a study involving 1300 felony trials, uh, and over and almost 30,000 prospective jurors throughout North Carolina, trial judges were 30% more likely 
to remove prospective jurors of color for cause than prospective white jurors, right? For cause. That's supposed to be the one with a high bar for a reason, right? In Louisiana, prosecutors used 58.9% of their challenges for cause to remove black prospective jurors, even though only 33% of the potential jurors were black. In Mississippi, prosecutors used 79.5% of their challenges to remove black prospective jurors, even though 34% of the prospective jurors were black. So, like, one, getting rid of peremptory challenges, right? We already have the ability to strike jurors for cause. Why should we have the ability to strike jurors? Because we feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> Fixing racial bias in jury pools, like in jury sources, increasing the you know, stringency, the amount that your jury pool has to look like your overall demographics. Race salient and questions. Increasing, yeah, race salient questions in voir dire and increasing the representation of... Uh, people of color and and black people in yeah. positions of power in our criminal justice system, like judges and prosecutors. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is one of our favorite asses that keep on hatting. It's Marjorie mm-hmm. Taylor Jewish Space Lasers Green. Oh, man. Space Laser exciting. Lady, come on down. Yeah, it has been a while since she's been on our show. Yeah, I think it's been almost three weeks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, she must have done something really bad this time to finally get on again. So, yeah. So what did she do? So, Michael, you know how there was recently a trial in which mm-hmm. there was a 17-year-old kid that crossed state lines to go brandish a uh, a firearm at a bunch of protesters, and he ended up killing mm-hmm. two of them? You know? Yeah, yeah. And I then he ended up getting off. Terrible thing happened that is either, it is either a murder and or a tragedy. Yeah. So Looks like a murder to me, but, you know, I'm not a judge. So naturally... Marjorie Taylor Green. Marjorie Taylor Jewish Space Lasers Green. I apologize. I I need to make sure that I don't. Yeah, you gotta say her whole name. Gotta gotta say her whole name. Um, she thought that the proper response would be to give the person that that killed two people the Congressional Medal of Freedom to stick it to the libs. Because nothing sticks it to the libs more than being like Hey, killing people's great. You're a hero. Look, we very specifically did not talk about the Rittenhouse thing as a full segment uh, during this whole time. Like we talked about it when it happened, but we very specifically did not because we don't like about we don't like how politicized it got. I mean, like we talked about when it came to when it came to Baudir, we were we were talking about how what's important it, what what's important is the facts, mm-hmm. all right, of uh, the facts of what happened. Now, I do think, based on what I've seen about the Rittenhouse trial, I think that whether or not he was legally in the right, I think that's in a lot of ways up in the air. I think that there's an argument to be made that the act of brandishing 
meant that any actions he took against or any actions that protesters took against him were automatically self-defense. But mm-hmm. if he, even if we are assuming that he was defending himself, even if we are assuming that, people still died and that is bad. And fuck you if you think that the guy that did that is a hero. At best, yeah. he's a guy that he's a guy that survived. At worst, he's a fucking murderer. <laughs> yep. Stick it to the libs. Seriously. Like, it takes it to a whole fucking new level. Yeah. <laughs> she said, you know, they would, uh, he would get, quote, uh, award a congressional gold medal to Kyle H. Rittenhouse, who protected the community of Kenosha, Wisconsin, during a Black Lives Matter riot. Fuck. He did, he protected, <laughs> he didn't protect shit. He didn't protect shit. At best, he protected himself. At worst, mm-hmm. he fucking murdered people. <laughs> he instigated. Yeah, my my favorite part was uh, uh, Joe Valdez, a spokesman for for Matt Gates, said, "We're concerned that awarding Kyle with a congressional gold medal will give him a big head during his internship with our office." <laughs> That's uh, okay. Okay. Let's put this into perspective. What is, is it with Matt Gates <laughs> and inappropriately talking about 17-year-olds? <laughs> well, to be fair, it was a spokesman, you know. Okay. True, true. So, true, yeah. This is Congress's highest honor that they can bestow, right? Kyle, should he get this, which thank God he won't. But should he get this, he would share company with Winston Churchill, George Washington, <laughs> The Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King Jr., and motherfucking Teresa. (laughs) Like, Jesus. No, I'm sorry. Kyle, I knew Mother Teresa. You, sir, are no Mother Teresa. (laughs) This is so insulting and ridiculous and just salt in an open wound and it's all to your point Nathan it's all just fucking own the limbs like yeah. politics like nothing can be unsullied including the congressional gold medal so a Trump. deep and hearty congratulations to Marjorie Taylor Juice Space Lasers Green for being our asshat of, of the, the week, week. And now for our last segment, we want to talk about another crazy person in Congress, Lauren Boebert. Yeah. And her fucking crazy racism. Yeah. What's kind of funny is that when we had been talking about this originally, we were originally planning on having uh, Lauren Boebert be our asshat this week. Mm -hmm. But there's just so much more to this story and so many implications that I, I I think we need to do a full segment about it. Yeah. So here's here's how it started. So she was giving a speech to this uh, crowd in Colorado, uh, which is which is where she's from, and she was telling the story of a time that she had apparently run into Ilhan Omar on the elevator. While she was telling this story. Uh, She said, quote, One of my staffers on his first day got me into an elevator in the Capitol Hill. 
And in that elevator, we were joined by Ilhan Omar. It was just us three. Um, it was just it was just us three in there. And I looked over and I said, "Well, looky, it's the Jihad Squad. She doesn't have a backpack. She wasn't dropping it and running, so we're good." Where to fucking start? <laughs> <laughs> that is enough to get you on our show as an asset. Yeah. <laughs> that is a horrible, racist, Islamophobic, totally bullshit thing to say. Yeah. And it would have it would have been, you know, plenty to get her on our show. Yeah. If only I mean, she had stopped there. Jihad squad. Yeah. All right. For, first off, what the actual fuck? The Jihad Squad. All right? And then she doesn't have a backpack. She's not dropping it and running, so we're good. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus Christ. You're yeah, fucking racist. She's a fucking suicide bomber. Yeah. You're fucking racist. And honestly, I mean, don't flatter yourself. Like, why would, why would, why would a suicide bomber target you? All right. You got no fucking power. Everybody hates you. You're one congresswoman. Don't fucking flatter yourself. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, but, but, but anyway, it's Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. And, and she, she, first off, she did later apologize to the Islamic community. Yeah. For um, offending them. For, for offending them, but she did not offer any public apologies towards Ilhan Omar. Uh, and by the way, Ilhan Omar also said that um, the story itself was a fabrication, that she never actually mm -hmm. had this interaction. Um, and in fact, they had a phone call in which she, like, she straight up demanded that uh, Lauren Boebert apologize. Mm-hmm. And Lauren Boebert refused to. And in fact, they had a phone call with each other in which Ilhan Omar basically demanded that she, she apologize publicly. Mm -hmm. um, Lauren Boebert refused to and doubled down on her comments. And they ended up hanging and Omar ended up hanging up on her. And later she, she accused Ilhan Omar of sympathizing with terrorists um, yep. she was like, you got a lot to apologize for, for this. And one of the things, one of the reasons why this is important is because this goes back to the idea that we have talked about on several occasions of stochastic terrorism. All right. When you, hmm. when you have a large following, when you have a microphone and you make claims like that, that, that a, a member of Congress, one of the first Muslims in Congress is, is a terrorist or a terrorist sympathizer. You know what fucking happens? The idiots that follow you, they hear that. They believe you. They believe you. And sometimes they straight up, like they threaten violence or commit violence. Um, pretty soon after the, uh, the, the, the comments about, um, the, the comments about her, her being a terrorist, 
her office received a phone call and she, she played this during a press conference. I'm going to, I'm going to read you the entirety of the transcript. All right. Just, just to make sure you understand this is what stochastic terrorism is. All right. Now this might be disturbing to some of you. It fucking should be quote. We see you Muslim and sand N word bitch. We know what you're up to. You're all about taking over our country. Don't worry. There's plenty that will love the opportunity to take you off the face of this fucking earth. Come get it, you fucking Muslim piece of shit, you jihadist. We know what you are. You're a fucking traitor. You will not live long, bitch. I can almost guarantee you that. We the people are rising up and you will be tried before a military tribunal and you will be guilty. You will be found guilty. A congresswoman got this call. Immediately following comments from another congresswoman, a colleague. The fact that Lauren Boebert still has a fucking job is a complete insult to the entire sanctity of Congress. And look, Congress doesn't have much sanctity to begin with. But Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. All right. Yeah. She's called Omar a full-time propagandist for Hamas and an honorary member of Hamas and a terrorist sympathizer. All of this is total fucking racist bullshit. And she's said it on more than one occasion. Like she's apologized for offending the Muslim community for this, this one thing, but this is a theme for her. It's a growing theme for Republican rhetoric and this white nationalist trend is one that we've seen grow. I mean, we've talked in the past about the increased incidence of domestic terrorism, right? We've talked, we fucking had a attempt to overthrow the government. You know, we, we've talked about the fact that the department of Homeland security has put out multiple warnings uh, about the, inc- the growth in white nationalist terrorist threats and incidents and this is a sitting member of the house of representatives trying to direct that rhetoric that violence at another member of the house of representatives yeah this is unacceptable this is unreal like and you know what it's fucking insane democrats have not done enough to to stand up for her. Yeah. For I mean, obviously Republicans haven't because of course Republicans aren't going to like Kevin yeah. McCarthy I mean, is Republi- way too yeah. much of a fucking like, yeah. Kevin McCarthy fucking just talked to Bobert and was like, Hey, you should give her a call. You guys should chat. Yeah. During which she refused to apologize, said that she should apologize, that Omar should apologize for anti-American, anti-police, anti-Semitic rhetoric. And later said that, you know, Boebert said that she would put America first, never, never sympathize with terrorists. Unfortunately, Ilhan can't say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny coming from somebody that sympathized with the people that tried to take over the fucking government. Yeah. Actual terrorists. So, and I just want to point out, when she says Ilhan Omar sympathizes with terrorists, what she means is that in the past, Ilhan Omar has pointed out the fact 
that bombing people overseas creates more terrorism. All right. When you bomb civilians overseas, when you commit war crimes overseas, it creates more terrorists. She's pointed out that fact, and that makes her a terrorist sympathizer. She's pointed out the fact. Remember when she pointed out the fact that the United States and Israel have committed war crimes? Mm-hmm. You know, like Hamas and like uh, and like ISIS. Mm-hmm. Now. She wasn't creating a moral equivalency. She was pointing out the fact that both of them, that that all four of those groups have committed atrocities, which is just a fact. It is objectively true. The Democrats completely turned against her for it. They didn't defend her for it. This is what she's talking about. Yeah. All right. She says she need they they say she needs to apologize for the Jewish community for daring to suggest the possibility that Palestinians should be treated like humans. That's what she's being accused of. Yeah. You know, there she's called a socialist or a communist or a Marxist for saying, hey, maybe people shouldn't be dying of health care. That's who Lauren Boebert is. Yeah. All right. It's straw manning. It's racist. It's Islamophobic. And it cannot be tolerated, but it fucking will be because we have a Democratic Party that can't do shit and won't do shit and a Republican party that will do even less. Yeah. Cause that is the state that we live in. That is the state of our discourse. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are the first two Muslim women in Congress. And they have been dealing with death threats every fucking week. Yeah. All right. This is why representation matters. Mm -hmm. This is why representation matters. All right. The fact that, when you're the first of something, when you're the first of a group that is representing in, in a body like Congress, that this is the type of shit you have to deal with, this is why there needs to be a more diverse coalition. All right? This is why that shit does actually matter. Mm-hmm. Because, the, because I can guarantee you, if these comments were made towards a group of people that had not even great representation, but like better representation in Congress, you know there wouldn't even be a conversation about it. All right. If she had mm-hmm. said, like, if she had said, uh, if there was, if it was, if, if there was a black person in the elevator and she had said something like, oh, well, I guess I, I guess I, uh, I better hide my TV. If she had said any of that shit, there wouldn't even be a conversation. Mm-hmm. But because Ilhan Omar is Muslim, Nobody knows what to fucking do because it is still within the Overton window in modern political discourse in the United States to be overtly anti-Muslim. And now we will end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Uh, Well, I just got a news alert saying that the Senate passed a stopgap uh, measurement to avoid a government shutdown. So I guess it's good that the government's not shutting down. <laughs> that is good. That is a highlight. <laughs> it's been a rough week. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, not a great highlight, but okay, it'll do. Yeah, gov- <laughs> government's not shutting down temporarily. Yeah, yeah. This will just be uh, you know recorded for all time for posterity. If yeah. Nathan's highlight this particular week was that we still have a government. Yep. <laughs> what about you, Michael? What's your highlight? 
So my highlight is that Bree and I are on a a workcation is what we're calling it. We oh, like yeah. decided to take advantage of still like working remotely and Bree having a slow December to get away for a bit. So we're down in the Outer Banks. We've got a, a very very cheap beach house, and so we're just like working and hanging out. The weather's warm. You know, there's a beach nearby. All that stuff. So we're kind of like getting away for a little while, and that's been really nice. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.